are pouring from the buildings now. There's cars toppled, buildings entirely crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So the fences inform me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I, I see some people running now. In the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. exciting episode of the Fire and Water Podcast, the official podcast of AquamanShrine.net and FirestormFan.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag from Firestorm Fan. Along with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Kelly, the man of questionable royal birth from the AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? <laughs> um, yeah, we are, you know, before we go any further, we should really be careful about what we say on this show because clearly we are very influential. <laughs> because not less than two days after we recorded the last episode where we talked about the Marvel and DC slate of movies, Mar I and I, you know, gave DC credit for for putting out or, you know, scheduling a movie starring a woman and starring a movie, you know, starring one of their African American heroes. Marvel does the same thing. So I can only assume they heard the show and decided to put the Black Panther and Captain Marvel movies into production based on what we said. I it's the only thing that makes sense. I mean, really. So let's, we, I think we should, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. So let's, I mean, I'm very happy that they're going to make those movies and I'm happy that I had a part of it. I think it's fantastic. And I'm very excited about the possibility of winning the lottery. So, um, <laughs> speaking of responsibility, let's thank our sponsor real quick. Uh, the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for hardcovers, trades, and other collected editions. All for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, buddy? Well, uh, and with the aforementioned Black Panther and Captain Marvel movies on the way, I wanted to uh, recommend something with them. And then um, it also tied into or a couple of weeks ago, uh, Professor Allen put out an episode of his Quarter Bin podcast about an issue of Marvel 2 in 1. Yeah, I used to love that book growing up. It was like always a fun read. So I decided uh, this this week is Essential Marvel 2-in-1 Volume 2 Trade Paperback. It features, of course, the ever-loving blue-eyed thing teaming up with various heroes. And in this volume, which covers Marvel 2-in-1 numbers 26 through 52 and annuals 2 and 3, features team-ups with Captain America, Daredevil, Miss Marvel, Black Panther, Moon Knight, Spider-Woman, and many more writers. 
Marv Wolfman, Roger Sliffer, Tom DeFalco, David Anthony Kraft, Ralph Macchio, John Byrne, Peter Gillis, Alan Coverberg, Bill Mantlo, Mary Jo Duffy, Stephen Grant, Jim Starlin, Art, Ron Wilson, John Musema, Ernie Chan, Sal Musema, Bob Hall, Alan Coverberg again, Chick Stone, Frank Miller, Jim Craig, Farrah Fawcett, uh, Howard Cosell, right. and the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders. The cover is by George Perez. Can't beat that. Mm. Uh, page count is 568. Normal price is 16.99. In stock trade price is nine dollars and 85 cents. That's 42 percent off. Uh, this was such a great book, Marvel Two and One. It was just classic, classic entertainment, and uh, it's the kind of thing they literally don't make anymore because fans don't seem interested in team up books. So give this a shot if you just love really entertaining, you know, Bronze Age Marvel comics. I have uh, I have that volume myself, and it's sitting on my to be read shelf, so. <laughs> along with everything else. It is a big shelf, <laughs> but I do own it. So, um, I picked out something uh, a favorite of mine this week as well, sort of seventies ish. It's uh, Essential Man Thing Volume Two. <laughs> I, uh, All our man things are essential. <laughs> it's also got some giant sized man thing in there. I'm just saying, but uh, <laughs> I. Uh, I've, I have a little something called Ultraverse on the brain lately, and one of the books out of Ultraverse is called Sludge. It was created by Steve Gerber. Steve Gerber apparently has a fascination with muck monsters. So, uh, when I think Steve Gerber, I think man things. So, folks, if you want some awesome, fun muck monster stuff, Essential Man Thing Volume 2 is your way to go. Guest stars include Captain America, Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, The Thing. I mean, it's almost like a Marvel 2-1 itself. It's got, uh, it's got Florida, so, you, you know, being that this is a week of elections, you know, it's a good time to be, do anything with Florida. Uh, it deals with censorship, prejudice, psychosis, ghost pirates. I mean, this thing's incredible. So, anyway, uh, check it out. It's got... Man thing, this is from the 70s, 15 to 22, uh, 1 to 11, giant size man thing, and it doesn't matter, it's a bunch of man thing comics. You got Steve Gerber writing it, Michael Fleischer, Chris Claremont, J.M. DeMattis, a bunch of other people. Artists include Tony DiZaniga, oh jeez, there's so many names, I'm not going to read them all off like you did. John Buscema, Bob Wyacek, Larry Hom, Larry Hama was an artist? Uh, Ed, yeah, Hannigan, oh yeah. Ed Hannigan, Ron Wilson, Michael Plug, John Byrne, Gene Colan, oh my gosh! Cover by Bob Wycheck, 536 pages in black and white. And I will tell you, if you're one of those people that are like, eh, black and white, it really, really, really works for Man-Thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the swamp and the muck and everything, the black and white Man-Things, actually, it's almost preferable to read it in black and white versus color. So check it out, 536 pages, only sixteen ninety nine. Retail, you get it here for $9.85. That's 42% off. That is rock and roll, my friends. Again, go to InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. You know, I'm glad you mentioned the thing, because um, with about a week ago or so, I went to a comic shop that was having a big sale. They were doing five for a dollar. Five for a dollar. What's that work out to per issue, Rob? Twenty cents. That's cheaper than twenty-five cents. Isn't that makes it? Professor Allen look like me. It, it makes Professor Allen look like a like a somebody who spends a lot of money. What do you call him? Money bags. Um, that's why I said he looks like me. Oh, that's right. Because you're money bags. I have money bags. Yeah, that's right. Fine. Money bags, stick, Kelly. Stick with the show. <laughs> I thought only David Gutierrez called you that, but anyway. So uh, I bought something like eighty comics. You know, I got I got a stack of thing. Um, the, it wasn't it wasn't Marvel Two One. They didn't have those in there, but they had a bunch of uh, the things. So I got a bunch of those. I've never read those. I got a bunch, a huge stack of Warlord, but 
I, I'm now up to something like 50 issues of Warlord, so I'm almost halfway there on my collection. It's awesome. So excited about that. Got a bunch of, oh, geez, what else? Oh, I got Omega Man number one. I oh, bought shit. Omega Man number one, and I'm halfway through reading it, and I fell asleep. <laughs> I'm going to finish it. But um, you've fallen asleep during many things, so that's I not necessarily f- an indication of any quality or lack thereof with the Omega Man. Fair enough. I picked up some Ultraverse. Oh, geez, I picked up a ton of stuff. Then I went to Atlanta for a business meeting this past week and had dinner with Michael Bailey, which is always wonderful. Got to see him and his wa- lovely wife, and we had a good time. And uh, he directed me to a comic shop where they had two for a dollar. Not 20 cents, not 25 cents, 50 cents. Still not bad. Uh, picked up another giant stack of Warlord. So uh, I am I am sitting pretty with the old comics right now. Very happy. And those Warlords included the first appearance of Arion, So. Oh, well, there you go. Yep, yep. So what you been up to, man? We've been, I'm going to get some things going on with the uh, Aquaman Shrine. Some, we're going to be running a contest soon uh, based on Aquaman and the others. We have an interview coming up with Dan Jurgens. We have an interview coming up with Jeff Parker related to the new storyline Maelstrom, which we'll get to in a moment in Aquaman. So lots of things happen going on at the Shrine. And uh, when I'm not doing that, I'm uh, busy destroying my uh, computer's internal systems. <laughs> if you wouldn't spill your gin on your laptop, this wouldn't happen. You know, <laughs> I thought I could handle it, but apparently I can't. Can't handle your sauce, Kelly. Well, uh, so uh, what, do, we, do we have anything else we want to get to? We... Well, just to tell you folks, it's our it's our review week. So uh, we're going to cover Aquaman 35 and Fury of Firestorm, Nuclear Man, number 15, classic. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. When I was in L.A., my friend who I was meeting for the first time was charmed by my accent. And I was like, I didn't know that I had one, but I guess I did. Classic. Classic. Uh, so yes, Aquaman number 35 came out a couple of weeks ago. This is the first chapter of the Maelstrom arc, uh, as uh, it's been titled on the cover there. This particular issue is called, the story is called Afterlife. It's, of course, by Jeff Parker. And the art is by Paul Pelletier and Sean Parsons. And the coloring is by Rain Barreto. And it's very interesting to me to read a lot of the tweets that were going on. People were so thrilled that Paul Pelletier is back for a whole <gasps> issue. Oh, that's great. And it's so funny that when you think about how popular the boys were on Aquaman mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then it was like oh boy is Paul Peltier going to be able to like take over and now he is completely won people over I mean people are com- like now complaining when he's not there for a whole week <laughs> so, <laughs> well he's, he's really made the book his own I'm very pleased he's done with his very work. good work he really has so you know good for him anyway very brief uh, inter- uh, overview of the story it, the issue starts with some flashbacks and then at the very end of the first page we see Aquaman looking into something some sort of large sort of box or tomb or something. We don't exactly know. We just see him in shadows. We don't know what's going on. And then we flash back a little. We see the setup as uh, Stephen Shin has been released from the hospital. He gets accosted by one of the guys from the Triton base who are basically saying, you know, hey, you gotta, you can't just leave. you got to come with us. But uh, that cop and Salty intervene. Yay, Salty. Salty <laughs> intervenes. He gets pushed away. Uh, uh, Shin is brought to the docks where he is met by Aquaman and Mira along with Dr. Evans, who is uh, brought, who can brought all down to Atlantis. And Aquaman and Mira are in this awesome boss Atlanta sh- Atlantis ship. I love this thing. I want, it is this, really, thing it is a, really I want cool. this thing to be a toy. They take them all down <laughs> to it. I want everything to be a toy. They take them all down to Atlantis, and they talk about these theories that Atlantis 
does seem to be reacting to Aquaman's mere presence, which was something they had hinted at earlier and Volko had mentioned in a previous issue. But uh, it does seem that when Aquaman is in the vicinity of the city, that's when these sea quakes seem to occur. So they're there to investigate. So while they're doing that, um, uh, well, actually, as soon as they get there, a sea quake does, in fact, occur. Aquaman and Mira do their best to make sure no one is injured and they um, make sure the statues are not falling apart and stuff like that. Then as uh, Evans and Shin are go into the uh, go to do their investigations, Mira transports all the royal assassins who were in the jails up to the surface where they are met with Aquaman and they are convinced that he's going to execute them. But he's not going to execute them. He decides to show them mercy and says that he's going to place them all in a small region near Antarctica where they are going to build their – get a chance to build their own society. And he is, he's basically saying, you, know, you do what you want. You're going to build the world how you see fit. Uh, and he is hoping that they are going to aim for something better than just unceasless, you know, unceasing violence. And so he's given them this chance. Uh, meanwhile, we see a brief scene of Evans and Shin doing some investigations. They find some sort of like – kind of like a rune stone, sort of like a, a, you know, some sort of mystical thing, which they place into a wall and it shows them all of these faces, the sea of faces covering the room. And you don't know what that's about just yet. We've, we flash back with Aquaman and Mira having dinner with some of his, his uh, Atlantean uh, council. They talk about that thing, perhaps that Aquaman is going to cause a problem for himself later on by not executing these guys, but Aquaman is firm that he's not going to do that. So then Shin and Evans find him. They explain to Arthur that Atlantis is basically made up of the electoral, electrical impulses of all the souls of former Atlanteans. And that's it's you know sort of a cross between science and magic of how Atlantis actually works. And their theory is that because Aquaman is only half Atlantean, that is why the city is quaking when he's there. It's sort of rejecting his presence. They don't fully understand that because they figure you would think that his mother being queen would be enough to override that. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So Aquaman goes investigating. The issue ends where it starts with Aquaman looking into the tomb of his mother. He lifts uh, the lid and finds that her body is missing. What the hell is up with that? And that is the end of the issue, the first issue of Maelstrom. Um, as I said on the shrine, uh, I thought it was great. I, I think Parker and Parson, Parker and Pelletier and Parsons are all doing a really, really great job. This is a very, very fun series. I love the humor that Parker and uh, that Parker is giving to Aquaman and Mirror. He's lightening these characters up. So, um, all in all, just very, very happy with it, as I have been with all the previous issues. But this seems like a, a, the kickoff to a pretty interesting story. I'm digging it. I, I really liked this issue, and I you know I didn't. It's funny. I didn't think about the fact that Pelletier was gone, uh, and now he's back. I just really, just warmly embraced his art and just really got into it. And then when, until you mentioned, I kind of forgot that he was gone last time. So I, I you know, it's. I, I guess I've just sort of accepted him as the Aquaman artist is what I'm ultimately trying to say. So um, kind of going bit by bit, I really loved the beginning when Shin and Evans got a chance to go on you know, the equivalent of the Atlantean Air Force One. Yep. And got to go down to Atlantis. Because, I mean, the Shin has been asking to go to Atlantis since issue one. I mean, there was that right. big deal about how Shin was, you know, begging Aquaman to get to Atlantis and stuff early on in, in Jeff John's run. To see him actually get there was really cool. Like, actually, I, I felt for him. I was really happy for him. They are nicer to him than he has any right to expect. That's probably true. <laughs> Although he did help him during the uh, attack of Chimera. Chimera, that's true. Yeah, with all the info dumps. It's interesting he has a family. 
Um, I'm not. I guess it's he, his, he's an uncle, so that was kind of interesting. To, to they try to humanize him a little bit more there by having him be have a niece who's in college. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going through my notes here. Sorry. And then I, I love the bit where the statues are getting fixed up because they acknowledge that there's a bunch of statues that nobody knows who they are. Yes. And it gets great because that's sort of always been like Atlantis has always been full of statues and they never bother to say who they are. Yeah. As Mirror literally says, it's another statue of an old guy nobody knows. Exactly. Which also mirrors later on how they talk about how knowledge was sort of forbidden by one of the previous kings of Atlantis as well. So um, that sort of ties in well there. Now, on page uh, 12, there's the, the council people. I really, I'm glad that Aquaman overruled the council. Um, interesting to see that they're not very happy about it. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the dudes, is, he's totally wearing Kirby headgear. Like, yes. <laughs> that is, that is a, a total Kirby like headpiece. So, And then the next page, there's a guy. Have we seen the fisherman yet in the New 52? Mm-hmm. Oh, we have? Yeah. Okay. Because this guy's collar is total fisherman pattern. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's the, the yellow with, like, the black dots, the yeah. black spots. Yeah, that's true. So maybe that's a fashion choice in Atlantis or something. I'm not sure. But I just was wondering maybe if this was foreshadowing the fisherman, but I guess not. So the the secret archive room I thought was really, really cool. And I like that uh, Atlantis is matched to a mystical origin. Now, the way you described the mother issue, I'm, maybe I got a different understanding of it. You were saying that um, well, how did you describe the mother issue tying into all this? Well, he, they mentioned that you're the Atlant, you're Atlantean. They said to Aquaman, "Your Atlantean half being sired by a royal should overrule it completely." So the fact that he is the such a direct lineage to the queen, they figured that that his half breedness shouldn't cause these sea quakes. But that's the part that they're confused by. Okay, see, I got something different out of it. I mean, you're right; they do say that. But the next part is what I focused on. They said, there's the dilemma. You are king by the last queen passing, but Atlantis doesn't recognize that status. And then at the end, when her coffin's empty, it leaves you to wonder, maybe she didn't never pass. Maybe she's still alive. So maybe that's the problem. Him sitting on the throne, and he hasn't earned the right because she's still alive. Hmm. Or she could be a robot. <laughs> it's one of those two. <laughs> that's, that's an old callback to an old action comics Aquaman backup. But, but yeah, I mean, maybe she never died. Maybe she's alive somewhere. Oh, I, I think I bet that's what it is. That's why there's nobody in the coffin. Yeah, that's why there's nobody in the coffin. And that's mm-hmm. why what they're saying is her being alive is what's causing the problem, actually. So, oh, okay. interesting. Maybe so. Yeah, maybe so. Interesting either way. So, good stuff. I don't... The cover... Is, are they taking the crown off of it, Aquaman, or putting it on him? That's a good. Uh, that's a good question. I'm getting the sense they're taking it off him. That the, his his rule is being challenged here by the ghosts. Of well, it does say King No More, so yeah, maybe yeah. that's okay. Yeah, so the ghost of the past with the skeletal hands are taking removing the crown. Okay, yeah. oh, interesting. I like the trade dress that says uh, Maelstrom. That's nice. Yeah, they're obviously pretty pretty big about this, like making this a very specific thing by giving, like I said, by giving it that that cover. And Jeff is doing like a big big push in terms of doing interviews. He's doing he's always been pretty good talking to various people, pushing the book, but he's really been been pressing it a lot for Maelstrom. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, it it might result in what uh, I predicted months and months ago, which would be Mara taking the throne. Maybe so. I said it, it, it's they, these guys are really on a roll. Um, one of the things I just wanted to mention a little side piece in terms of the again the artwork. 
like in the next to last page where Aquaman approaches the crypt mm-hmm. of his dead mother. Like I love the the arc that's there, like the stone edifice. Yeah, and you see, it's made up of all these different statues, but it's got the A symbol on. Like, I just love that little bit of design. So Pelletier is really—I thought he did a good job when he took over, but I think he's gotten markedly better in the year and a half or so since he's been doing the book. Like, I think he's really, really gotten up to speed on it. And as I said, I think it's very almost touching to see how people are upset when he's not on the book now. <laughs> when he misses a month, they're like, "Where's Paul Pelletier?" And if they, that's, <laughs> That's got to be great for him to feel because I know he's really busting his hump to get this done and get it, you know, because he has a hard time getting like a, a full book done in a month. So it, it must be a, it must be a nice thing to see so many people sort of like dying to see his stuff on this on this series. Another follow up nod to that is when when Aquaman does go to that arch, you know, the minute he leaves the throne room and heads towards his mother's grave, which has got to be a very, you know, sorrowful and or sor- sorrowful moment for him you know you never see Aquaman's face it is in shadows Mm -hmm. from the Mm -hmm. moment he approaches his mother's grave to the end of the comic you never see Aquaman's face again and his body's in shadow it's very purposeful and uh that's a really well done touch I said he's we're doing he's doing very well they're really really doing I said and it's got an appearance by Salty which I always always happy with and for those of you who are sort of new to the show Salty named by who uh that would be the Aquaman Shrine yep (laughs) <laughs> awesome claim to fame right there buddy you've added something to the Aquaman mythos it was my idea to have the contest <clears throat> but anyway um, <laughs> I'm just giving credence to the show okay. part. you can edit that out anyway <laughs> oh I can't <laughs> ah, that's right Rob's computer's broken he can't edit anything <laughs> anyway folks um, that's going to wrap up Aquaman great comic if you didn't read it uh, we spoiled some things for you but it's still definitely worth picking up grab it off the shelves on the shelves now as the kids say and uh, we're going to take a quick break right we're going to come mm-hmm. back to Firestorm yes and folks you're going to hear something uh, near and dear to my heart so listen up hey Michael hey Dad we need to record another new trailer another one yes you know that we read comics and then talk about comics because as we've established talking about comics you've not read is just dumb yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. A-Kids Comics, still every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. The Ultraverse Network begins now. Over 20 years ago, Malibu Comics debuted The Ultraverse. It may not have lasted long, but the creativity and quality of its titles and creators caught many readers' imaginations when it first appeared and in the years since. This network of fans celebrates the fun and excitement of the Ultraverse and its awesome writers, artists, and characters. Featuring three ongoing podcasts covering a variety of topics, including Nightman and Solitaire, our blog will feature regular coverage of The Strangers, Sludge, Firearm, Ultra Force, and all your other favorites. Look for Ultraverse Network on iTunes and visit our website at ultraversepodcast.com. We are giving Ultraverse fandom a jumpstart. Boy, does that Ultraverse Network sound awesome. Wow. I bet that uh, Ultraverse Podcast Prime of Your Life is totally rocking. Don't you you think? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) It's, It's at least as good as a Legion of Superheroes. That's wow, really? You know, I think you're just jealous because I'm recording another podcast with another guy, David Gutierrez. 
I, we'll talk about it off here. I'm just saying, every time I like I, I do a crack at David, I'll get an email back from him that says, yeah, Rob warned me this would happen. See? I, I, I try and tell these people. Nobody listens to them. <laughs> All right, folks. Uh, we are back in it for the Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, number 15, classic. Um, we're going to start off talking about the cover on this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. It is a fantastic cover done by Pat Broderick and Dick Giordano. Firestorm is struggling. He's being held almost down by a mass of multiplexes. That's right, multiplexes. I had to look it up. Anyway, on the cover, uh, Multiplex is yelling, maybe you can beat one of us, Firestorm, maybe even two or three. But then his other du- another dupe says, but a dozen or a score? And the final dupe, who's teeny tiny, goes, that's just one Multiplex too many. I love it so much. <laughs> like, what do you think of the cover? Oh, it's very nice. It's, it's a, you know, pretty typical superhero comic cover. All I think about mostly when I look at it is just, how much work Paul Pat Broderick had to do for this issue? <laughs> Pat Broderick was a hard, hard working man. And by the way, he's back at DC. Did you hear about that? I did. I did. After uh, 20, 25 years or something like that, he's working back at DC. Yeah. So very excited for him. Hopefully, he will land himself a Firestorm gig. Uh, all of us are sort of like crossing our fingers with uh, with Firestorm being on the Flash. We're like, hmm, you know, Future's End's going to end sooner or later. And Firestorm's going to come out of that, whatever happens there. And everyone's kind of like, maybe we can get a Firestorm book, please? So, They anyway. should make, they should do a Flash TV tie-in comic where Flash is the lead story and then the, the backup features are all the characters that they're working into the Flash. Well, you know, they just did a Flash Season Zero comic. Oh, I didn't know, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, it may have been digital, I'm not sure. I saw it in okay. previews, I, I haven't... Okay read any myself but um that would be yeah that having a backup strip that would be brilliant that's a great idea right? flash lead story and then you do firestorm adam and yeah. other other characters they're, they're working into the that would be a great idea all right so okay folks this is uh again issue 15 it is um the second part in a six issue story arc at the time we didn't know it was going to be six issues i don't think but it was a six issue story arc second part so we covered last one in the previous episode but i think you'll get caught up pretty quick uh, this sucker has a cover date of August 1983. However, if you want to pick it up off the shelf and wait month by month to buy this one issue a month, you're going to have to go back in time to May 12, 1983 to pick up this comic. Yeah, that's right. My mom's birthday. Um, Aw. So, I mean, she wasn't born in 1983. That, no, would, I... that would be weird. But no, it still was her birthday. Anything's, anything's possible in Florida. We were in Michigan. No, wait, no. By 83, we were in Florida. Never mind. All right. Um, so this sucker is 24 pages of story. You get uh, anywhere from, f- depending how you count, five to nine independent scenes. And um, I tried to come up, come up with my, like, 10,000-foot level version of the story. And if I had to really focus on anybody whose story this issue is, I would say it's Multiplex's story. I mean, it's about him striking out at somebody he views uh, as an enemy and then he loses that battle the his foe gets away and it's about him trying to figure out a way to turn it back around to his advantage so that's but really it's it's hard to put a 10,000 foot level on part 2 of 6 really it's you know the whole story would be a bigger arc anyway all right this sucker is a Jerry Conway Pat Broderick Roden Rodriguez Adam Kubert and Gene D'Angelo joint and the story is called Breakout. Going to run through this 
I always say relatively quickly, but it's probably not as quick as I think it would be. So when our story opens, Firestorm is being held captive in like this energy cylinder by Multiplex and another supervillain named the Enforcer. Lots of exposition going on here, folks, catching up the readers. Firestorm struggling within the energy tube while Multiplex and the Enforcer are jibber-jabbering. And he, Firestorm manages to remove these disruptor pods, which are equivalent to... Um, those little poppers you put on the ground and they pop way high in the air, uh, equivalent to these little poppers that are on his on his temples. And as those pop off, he is able to gain access to his powers again. And he transforms the giant energy holding tank projector into an enormous flashlight. Then it's fighty fight time, or as I think uh, Andy Leyland says, fighty McFightenstein or something like that. Uh, Firestorm quickly transforms the Enforcer's armor, because he's an armored character like an Iron Man. He, he transforms the fiber plastic armor into a medieval knight's armor, uh, and then Multiplex powers up and run, takes off running while he's creating duplicates as he goes. It's a pretty good fight between Firestorm, Multiplex, and the Enforcer. I mean, just because the Enforcer's in the knight's armor, don't count him out. He still gets in a couple good blows. And during some of the discussion and some of the action, we do find out that Multiplex is working for somebody else. This whole uh, job is not his scheme, so that's worth knowing. Ultimately, Multiplex gets away, and he takes with him Lorraine Riley. She has been a hostage over the last several issues we've seen. Uh, they've been doing some brainwashing on her, and it's clearly working. She's also a bit of a love interest for Firestorm, and more, most importantly for this issue, she is the daughter of a U.S. senator. We'll get back to that soon. Anyway, as Multiplex is escaping, Firestorm is battling it out with some of his duplicates, and Firestorm ends up being victorious. A little bit later, uh, Ronnie and Professor have separated into their independent identities, and they are discussing the opportunity or, or option of revealing their secret identity to the world. They're, you know, they're interrupted by Clarissa. If you don't recall her, she is Professor Stein's ex-wife, and as I like to call her, the lilac-hued whore. Um, Clarissa then uh, manages to open some old marital wounds and agitates Professor Stein to the point where he almost slaps her. Stein is ashamed of his behavior and leaves, while Ronnie is stuck there with Cl Clarissa as she further manipulates him. Then we, um, the story follows the aforementioned uh, U.S. Senator. His name is Senator Walter Riley, and as a reminder, he is the father of Lorraine Riley, who's been kidnapped. He is known as one of the most liberal uh, senators in Washington, and he surprisingly uh, places the swing vote to support a monopoly on nuclear research by a company called Hewitt. What? Why would a liberal do something like that? Well, of course, it's because Lorraine's being held hostage, and it's by Hewitt and a company. So uh, then the story, we follow the senator to Hewitt's house. They go to this super fancy sci-fi kind of place. Uh, Hewitt is insanely rich, but he is very, very sick. Sort of a Howard Hughes sort of thing. He's, he's laying on a couch. He can't move. He's immobile. He, he has no immunity to disease. A common cold could kill him. He's bald. All these things. Um, so we see the senator go through this elaborate disinfecting process. They go to a lab 13 floors underground. Anyway, he interacts with Hewitt. Hewitt's a complete ass. He gloats about uh, about the only thing he cares about that he gets enjoyment out nowadays is the quest for power. He says he's keeping Lorraine as a hostage to keep the senator under control. And we see Lorraine. She is in like she's in like almost like a scuba gear, you know, complete wetsuit, and she's floating in this fancy tank. Basically, it's uh, Luke Skywalker's back to tank from Empire Strikes Back. Then uh, Multiplex, we, we go back to him, and he's hanging out with one of Hewitt's guys, a guy named Maxwell. And they're watching Ronnie Raymond go home um, through a special secret spy camera that Clarissa, the lilac-hued whore, is using. 
Um, we see Ronnie having a conversation with his father. His father, Ed Raymond, is very disappointed in Ronnie. And honestly, as a father, he's got good reason. I mean, it's, he doesn't know Ronnie's firestorm. And so what he's experiencing is Ronnie's 30 minutes late for curfew. He finds out that Ronnie's been fired from his job. He knows that Ronnie's been kicked off the basketball team. It's just one series of irresponsible action after another. So the father's very frustrated. Doesn't know what to do, but he has to go to work. So he says, we'll deal with this later. And he says, you're grounded. And then Ronnie sort of... There's a funny moment where Ronnie's like thinking to himself, I hope the JLA doesn't call. My dad won't let me come out and play. Uh, which is pretty funny. So Ronnie passes out on the couch, exhausted. And he has these dreams of Multiplex sitting on top of him, pinning him to the couch. And he kind of sort of wrestles with this nightmare version of uh, Multiplex. And it turns out, in reality, it was his girlfriend, Doreen Day, who'd climbed up on top of him on, her ca- on his couch. Because, you know, in the 80s, all good, wholesome girls broke into their boyfriend's houses and climbed onto him on a couch. Anyway, um, they have a, a little sort of talk. They, they sort of acknowledge that they've missed each other, and then they have sex. So, and it says, next issue, Blackout. And I will tell you now, folks, next issue, which is issue 16, has quite possibly the single most shocking comic book cover of 1983. And it is a shocking scene that I will say, go as far to say, also does happen in the comic. So, if you want to wait till next week, next month, you can. If you want to Google it now, go for it and go, oh my gosh! So, there we go. What'd you think of it, man? Oh, it's a lot of fun. I'm definitely not going to wait for next month, though. Um, I do like this issue ending with Dark Hero getting laid. That's fun. Um, <laughs> I did like the whole thing with Martin Stein reaching out to slap, the, what's her name? Not because I liked it, liked it, but like, you know, he's he Martin Stein has been presented as a pretty, like, almost not perfect, but really upstanding guy so it's nice to give him some character flaws there you know like that's a nice little there's, bit there's the whole alcoholism thing well i don't it's a little different to me i mean that's i feel like that's a problem he has i don't necessarily think, feel think less of somebody because they because they're like that but you know if you reach out to like slap your girlfriend that's a different thing <laughs> um so it's yeah it's good to give people you know feet of clay it's not always everybody's perfect uh, I like the little bits with Enforcer where he seems to be like a little nicer than we might expect because in the first issue he was that he was introduced, the last one, he was like a real dick. <laughs> and here, I mean, he's like when uh, when Multiplex says, you know, the, uh, ultimately, of course, both of them will die. Enforcer's like both of them, the kid too. And like yeah. you don't really get anything past them. You get the sense that he's maybe a little bothered by that, which I thought was cool. I really – I am really taking to the Enforcer character. I know he doesn't like last long, but – I really dig him. It was really cool. He was an interesting enough character and had a cool enough look. He could have been a contender. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think he really could have. He could have been like um, Bolt was in the 80s and 90s where Bolt just kept showing up in places. He mm-hmm. was like almost a throwaway villain created for the Blue Devil. Mm-hmm. And he just kept showing up. I think Enforcer could have been that guy that like, I need, you know, when you're writing a comic, you go, I need a bad guy who doesn't really matter, but is there to move the story for. Oh, he's the Enforcer. Yeah, no, I, I like him a lot here, and uh, I couldn't help but laugh just of all the different word balloons from all the multiplexes. <laughs> just talk like just this crowd of heroes, crowd of villains. Well, Firestorm, well, what are you waiting for? What are, like just it's very comical of like all these guys. And again, poor Pat Broderick had to draw all these people. He every time he got the script and he saw that the villain was multiplex, he must have just been like, oh, oh, can can I just do a hyena again or something? But uh, he he you know he does his all. The art looks really great, and there's a uh, a lot of great action sequences. The coloring is quite nice because you've got a lot of the contrast of the 
the warm colors of Firestorm and the cool colors of Multiplexo. Just visually, it's nice to look at. I and, never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, you got a nice, uh, you know, contrast there. Uh, what's her name? The uh, purple-headed uh, whore, as you like to call her, Clarissa. She's she looks really evil uh, when she's yeah, got she her does. chest on uh, her head on Ronnie's chest. Um, so you know, good stuff. Good, just you know, I I enjoyed this story. I'm enjoying this story very much, and I'm not reading ahead on purpose. I might oh, look cool. at the cover. But I'm really trying to read it as just we go along, as if it was coming out at the time. I feel like it, it, it returns it more to the original experience. Yeah, it, it, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, you talked about Stein and the violence. I mean, the domestic violence thing was really quite shocking. Now, admittedly, she was pushing every button she could because we find out she is evil and she's been manipulating since her first appearance. However, to be able to push Stein to that level, I mean, that's not something she did. That's a choice Stein made. Um, whether it be reflex or not, it's still quite shocking to see Stein go that path. And and right now, honestly, this really is Stein's story. I mean, if you look at it, Multiplex, uh, in the beginning, he's talking about Firestorm as the villain. He, it's not really Firestorm he's talking about. It's Stein. It's very interesting to find out that Stein has an arch enemy, and it's Multiplex. It just so happens that he's in the Firestorm body, but it's Stein that Multiplex hates. Right. Because usually it's all about Ronnie. And I love the character of Stein because he's always felt like a very real character to me. And while the domestic violence thing is is, is disgusting, if you will, however you want to describe it, it's it does make him, like you said, a flawed character, a little more interesting to read about. So um, at the same time, in Avengers, uh, Hank Pym was beaten up uh, with the Wasp, so it was a that's true. It was a good couple of years for wife beaters in superhero comics. Hey, at least uh, Stein didn't pull the trigger, though. You know, well, and, uh, yeah. and they don't say he ever did previous to this. So it could have been just a, you know, actually, you know what? Here's a thought. They later on we find out in the Firestorm book that Ronnie starts acing tests because of um, his influence by Professor Stein. Like their joined mind helps him start acing tests. <laughs> you could retroactively say then perhaps being with Ronnie, who has been in a few fist fights already in the series, is sort of rubbing off on the professor. Mm-hmm. Making him more of a hothead. No pun. Could be. In fact, there's a there's a line earlier in the issue where they deck the, I think it's the enforcer or is a multiplex, and Professor Stein thanks Ronnie and says, I've been wanting to do that for, you know, for several hours now. <laughs> so maybe Stein is being influenced. There we go. Okay, we've, we've no-prized that one. Anyway, um, all of this is Clarissa's fault, by the way. Because, you know, Professor Stein recorded a tape in Fury of Firestorm number one for our benefit, really, is the reader recapping Firestorm's origin. Is why he recorded that tape. And then he threw it in the trash or whatever. And Harry Carew stole the tape, not knowing what it was, thinking he could use it as sort of like, you know, a little bit of research on Stein and get the edge on him in competitive science. Then, Clarissa took it from Harry Carew. Well, let me tell you, there's only one way she got it from Harry Carew, because a couple issues ago, she, like, she came to see Harry... And they spent some time together. Yeah, she slept with Harry Carew. Friggin' whore. So that's where I'm going with this. She had to have. In order to get the tape from him, which was at his house, she had to get it from him. Because remember, the tape went missing from Harry's house? Right. I'm just saying. She's sleeping around. She's bad news. Anyway. I mean, you don't have to slut shame. I mean, you know, she's using her wiles to get what she wants. I just hate her. Anyway, so Firestorm is in the energy tube, and he actually uses his eyes... Like the, the on page uh, four, the transmogrifying power comes out of his eyeballs, which I don't think we've ever seen before. And it's not that it's unbelievable or something, but it's just different. And it's like, oh wow, it doesn't have to burst, don't have to come from his hands. So it's kind of a neat idea that the energy can come from anywhere, 
we used to debate this when we played role-playing games, because it would say you, you could have energy project from anywhere, and I was like, well, you know, pick a place, and be like, no, I can make it, and I can, it can come out of my elbow if I want it. <laughs> like, really? I, I don't. You have hand, you shoot them out of your hands, or your eyes. Pick one. No, no, anywhere. And so it's sort of that kind of argument that it can come from anywhere. So I like that look where it blasts out of his eyes. It just, it also makes a really great striking image. Yes, it does. Uh, let's see. Uh, a good example of Ronnie enjoying the powers and having fun with it is on page six, where he's chasing multiplex. I mean, we saw him already create the giant flashlight. Here he creates a bunch of giant building blocks, like little kids' building blocks, to go after multiplex. He's clearly reveling and having fun with the powers, and I love that aspect of Ronnie. I think that's great. He always showed more imagination than Greenlander never did with his constructs. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Kyle Rayner gave him a run for his money, though. So them going pub- talking about going public with their secret, that's an interesting idea. You know, the, the whole idea of going public and, and just telling the world their firestorm. I wonder how that would have changed the series if they mm. had. You know, that would have been pretty damn interesting. So other things to highlight here, like when they meet Hewitt and he's sort of like real sickly, all his balloons are in like whis- word balloons are in whisper mode. Which is pretty cool. Yeah. Like, I didn't have to like strain to read them all. Right, but I think that's cool because you know it, it sort of fits with that. So then uh, we have an ad for uh, Cisco to like this. We have an ad for Batman and the Outsiders number one. Pretty cool, loving that. Nice Jim Aparo artwork. Oh yeah. Then uh, the father and the death sentence, huh? Hmm. Now this ties back to something from the original volume of Firestorm, where we knew there was something fishy with Firestorm's dad, but they never got a chance to reveal it, at least in the published issues. So this will be interesting to see how it plays out here. And do you think there's something Freudian going on with Multiplex attacking Ronnie in his sleep, but it turns out it's really Doreen? Like, is maybe his dreams tend to try to tell him that she's an enemy, and she's bad news for him? Uh, that's a good... It's a good call. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I'm sure he gets distracted by the fact that, you know. She sleeps with him on the floor. He gets, he gets a bunch of action right after that. Oh, yeah, he does. Oh, yeah, he does. Nothing clouds a guy's mind more than that. I, I, I can't even think straight right now myself. So, uh, All in all, fantastic issue. Really, really uh, so excited to be covering these. And uh, it's just a crying shame they haven't been collected yet. It's such a good run. This, this is really, you know what, this is probably... Uh, of all the Firestorm issues we've read so far, this is issue 15, this is probably the most Spider-Man-like issue we've done yet. Because, you know, I was thinking about this, because Conway you know, is fam- well-known for writing Spider-Man. And if you look at, like, the, the, the storyline that unfolded with Hewitt, and the layer, and all the weird science stuff going on, and the really, you know, the really quirky, weird bad guy and stuff, that just felt like, a, like something out of a Spider-Man comic to me. Yeah, well, I mean, he built up Firestorm's supporting cast very similarly to Spider-Man, uh, the Firestorm supporting cast of the Spider-Man one. You, you know, over in Spider-Man, he had Flash Thompson and Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane and Aunt May, and then here you've got Martin Stein and Clarissa and Lorraine, and you know, it just it has that same feel to it. Yeah, it does. And I haven't said much about it yet, but obviously the art is gorgeous. Pat Bardick does a great job. We get two full-page splashes in here. One of Firestorm, you know, um, in the in the tank, if you will, and Multiplex gloating, and uh, with the Enforcer there, and then later on we get another full page splash. It's when he's fighting the the Multiplex duplicates, which is always fun. And I love how when the Multiplex duplicates continue to get smaller when they when they make them. So there's teeny tiny ones that are you know like knee high punching him. <laughs> hilarious. I, love I it. hope they do that on the Flash show. 
that would be great. That would be totally awesome. So, all right. Um, I've talked enough about this. I can't help it. I can't help gushing about this comic. I'm just so excited about it, and I absolutely loved it. it it's a complete story. You get a full story, and yes, part of a greater saga. So, there we go, folks. Fairy Firestorm number 15. Go pick it up, please. I put a please on it, so now you have to do it. All right. Um, I think we're going to take a few minutes here. We're going to do some feedback. We have gotten some messages from our last review episode where we covered Octoman 34 and Fury Firestorm number 14. And Rob, why don't you take it away? All right. We got an email from Earth 2 Chris. He says, uh, thanks to Rob's Facebook recommendation, I'm currently reading Marvel the Untold Story and devouring it. Good God almighty, there is some high drama there. I'm nearing the end of the Silver Age, so I know it's about to get hairy. And then uh, Chris takes issue with uh, Shag's definition of jumping the shark, which I didn't think was totally made a lot of sense when he said it, but I didn't want to argue. Apparently uh, everyone took yeah. issue with my definition um, of jumping the shark. Says, what so. it really means is that it's all downhill from here, as with Happy Days. And it was. He said, I expect continued quality from you two, though. Going back to Silver Age Marvel, episode 100 was your Galactus saga. There's still more great things to come, though. Your This Man, This Monster, and Intro of the Black Panther are ahead of you. Uh, relating to talk about Firestorm, I always like the Enforcer's look as well. I have no experience with him or her other than who's who, but the look struck, stuck with me. The faceplate book looks a bit like Iron Man's earliest red and gold look with the horns on this yellow face. Looks like he's flying in that page on the Tumblr, so I guess he's quite Iron Man-like. Congrats on the art gig. He says that to me, setting stuff, rubbing elbows of a state, and then JLGLPVHN. Keep us Keep us posted. <laughs> Uh, and Shag- oh, yeah, I was supposed to say PBHN with you. I yes, PBHN. Uh, keep us posted. And Shag and Cumberland Boy, I'm enjoying visiting the Legion blog every day. Great stuff. Uh, just super quick update in terms of the um, Charlton book I'm working on. The art is finished. It's all into Paul, so it's all just he's just putting it together. I've been seeing bits and pieces of, of stuff. Uh, it really is a beautiful-looking book, and uh, it should be out, I think, in the beginning part of 2015. So uh, believe me, I'll let everyone know when it's out because you should pick it up. This is the Charlton Romance comic, right? This is Paul Coverberg's Secret Romances, which is like one of the funniest titles ever in the history of comics. Oh, is actually, oh Paul Coverberg's name's in the title? Yes, he put his name in the title. <laughs> yes. So it sounds like the book is about romances that Paul has had, and maybe it is. I don't know. I guess we'll all find out. That is a hoot. <laughs> all right. Uh, we got some comments from our buddy Kyle Benning. Uh, he also is loving the untold story of Marvel Comics, by the way. Yeah, so I, yeah, was, I guess I need to pick that up. You do. <laughs> Everyone does. <laughs> so, sounds like it. He says, uh, I'm with you, Shag. I really love this arc. I'm looking forward to your coverage of the whole six-part story. This is talking about Firestorm. Wouldn't this story be perfect for a trade collection? Hint, hint, DC. I'd love to see a supervillain team-up of the Enforcer with the original Bloodsport. Wow. Then he goes on, we talked a little bit about Marvel villains and stuff, and he gives his great sort of breakdown of all the Marvel villains and sort of where it's heading and where it's been going. So definitely head over to Firestorm Fan and read the comments on that, uh, and you'll see what his, his thoughts were on all the villains. We heard from Zoom Yukinori. Did I get it right this time? I believe so. All right. He says, Shag, your enthusiasm shone brightly in this podcast, and it brings to mind a story of my experience with the Fury of Firestorm title. I may have explained this before, but it wasn't easy finding DC comic titles while I was in school in the UK. However, I had an uncle that did live in the United States, and he would buy an extra copy of certain comic book titles off the newsstands where he lived and bring the accumulated stack with him when he came to visit me. The Fury of Firestorm was one of those titles, and on one of those visits, he brought me 
issues 14 through 20. Oh, man, such good stuff. The greatest uncle ever. After my uncle left, I soon had the pleasure of binge reading what you would call the what you call the greatest story arc of Firestorm ever, and I agree. Except for one problem. There was no Fury of Firestorm annual number one in the stack. Oh my gosh, that must have been a heartbreak for him, seriously. That this Shag's commentary. That that had to kill him. Uh, I, I wrote a letter to my uncle asking about the missing final chapter, and he had written back to me saying that it had not been released yet even though he had brought the next two issues after it. So I had to wait several months before I could finally read the conclusion of this arc. Worse, I decided to go ahead and read issues 19 and 20, the latter of which spoiled the surprise ending of the arc. So I'm, he's curious. So basically he goes on to ask folks, uh, he says, Mike's Amazing World of Comics says that the annual did come out shortly after issue 18, which it's supposed to, that's the reading order, but his uncle said otherwise. So he's curious what other people thought. Martin Gray wrote in saying that he was in the UK, but in his memory, the annual did come out shortly after issue 18 when it was supposed to. Now, I will tell you from my own experience, I wasn't collecting Firestorm at the time. I didn't start collecting Firestorm until issue 28, so I can't validate that. However, I will say I've never heard any stories besides yours about the annual coming out at the wrong time. So, sounds like uh, it probably was just a case of maybe distribution issues, would be my guess. We heard from Little Russell Burbage uh, from... uh, brawl and he says uh, I wasn't prepared for that he says uh, this issue of Firestorm is almost my favorite so far it was plotted well and the action was basically spread between the three leads Stein Ronnie and Firestorm for a change I'm much more of a fan of these little issues rather than the epic or big stories so it was a nice change of pace then Russell goes insane he has a little fit and uh, puts on his angry pants uh, about about the enforcer being a male in this issue, and yet finding out later on at some point Enforcer's a female because of who's who, and he's on this whole gender bender thing that he's on with Hyena. I'll t- all I'll tell you, Russell, is all be explained, and you're wrong. So, relax. <laughs> but he says, I really want to like Firestorm, the comic. Seriously, I do. However, my overly literal and logical mind keeps walking smack dab into the door jam of stupid plot contrivances. <laughs> Multiplex wanted to kidnap Firestorm, so he only kidnapped Stein? I'm with Shag here. Why is this the plan? When the Enforcer has both Stein and Ronnie right there, why only take one of them? If this isn't explained next issue, it's really going to bother me. I'll tell you, uh, Russell, it did not get explained. So that is a plot hole that you can drive a small golf golf cart through, so I'll give you that. He says, I do look forward to the reappearance of Multiplex. He slash they were always my favorite Firestorm villain, and I don't know how, um, I don't know the how of what's going to happen to Lorraine, but I'm guessing I know the what. To, uh, and to the end of these comments, on a silly note, I heard said by the enforcer that he, she, blam blams at Firestorm, this Sentry Mark XX combat tank was designed to take a dozen fighter jets simultaneously. Against it, he never had a chance. Then Russell goes on to say, yet Firestorm isn't all that roughed up. His costume isn't even darkened up, a la Yosemite Sam and TNT. And even more surprisingly, neither's the wall of the headquarters. Did the Enforcer mean his tank takes on Kenner fighter jets, maybe? Because the tank did surprisingly low level of damage here. By the way, speaking of the nice, nice uh, Kenner reference, by the way. Speaking of which, I meant to ask you, Rob, when, when in the issue we just covered, when Multiplex flies away mm-hmm. with uh, Lorraine in tow, isn't he fi- flying like the superpowers, you know, jet there? It did look like that, yeah. <laughs> That's what came to mind for me. So now think if they had done oh five. We probably have mentioned this before, but if they had done a superpowers multiplex figure, you would have had to buy like ten of them. 
I have said, yes, when we've talked to action figures before, I have said if they would do a multiplex action figure, now I want to specify multiplex action figure in some sort of supervillain costume. I don't mean the dude that was just on the Flash. I no. Would not buy, I would not buy multiples of that guy. Nothing wrong with him, but he's just a guy. Um, but if they built a multiplex in a costume, I would buy multiples. Yeah, I mean, it's like I had a dozen Stormtroopers. That's how it works. I, I have 12 um, Aquamans with a hook hand. From the Total Justice line. Oh. <laughs> uh, we got an email from Diablo Frank. Uh, he again takes Shag to task for his definition of jumping the shark. I was wrong. Yeah, Fine. But he really, really went on that. Uh, besides being the most engaging comic book, comic book book I've read since Gerard Jones' revised version of the comic book heroes of Will Jacobs in the 90s, Marvel the Untold Story has been invaluable to my recent podcasting efforts. Yes, as we all know. Uh, Frank hosts or co-hosts the Marvel Superheroes podcast. You should give a listen to it. Truth is, beyond the first chapter, I've read the book only through ref- through reference searches and still awesome taking an out-of-context paragraph at a time. My one complaint is his journal omission of the timely years. Uh, he mentions about the uh, print-the-legend story in terms of Jim Shooter being able to license some DC characters and maybe there was, that story was a little more sensationalistic than, uh, than, than was really accurate. I don't know. All I know is it made my jaw drop open when I read it. Uh, he mentions, I suspect the theory of Marvel Studios is that they want people to like the heroes who they see in every movie so they have a built-in draw for the franchise. Instead of having people see the flicks for a new starring villain requiring big paydays and promotional heat for every single movie. Why pay Jim Carrey $20 million and waste 45 minutes of screen time setting up the Riddler's origin only to have star all over again in the next Batman movie when you can buy Christopher Eccleston? How do you say his name? Eccleston. Eccleston an economy car and use him for sex dressing while your low rent contract <laughs> players do all the heavy lifting to keep Thor chugging along. Uh, <laughs> I love Frank's digressions. Uh, DC loves its media tie-in, so I expect either a best of Firestorm or a Conway Broderick trade sooner rather than later. Oh, please, dear Lord, please. We're all dying. I was actually thinking it should have been in this issue's uh, previews so that it would hit the streets in July or February, or in January or February, but no such luck yet. Mm-hmm. And he mentions, I'm not sure if I'll pick up the Blue Devil Showcase present since I've got most, if not all, those issues. But since I'd like a second volume where my run gets spotty, I may step up for the first. I've developed such an aversion to DC that I even feel bad when I buy reprint edition. You shouldn't be like that. You should, you should buy, buy the reprint edition that clicks something really good, Frank. The Find one. your joy, Frank. Seriously. And, and, and buy it. I mean, you know, if, if your joy is those old issues, buy that. Just don't buy the new stuff. There you go. Uh, heard from our buddy Tim Wallace, also giving Rob congratulations on his Charlton gig. And he says, and thanks to Shag, uh, well, both of you, really, for your kind words about continued plugs in my various projects. You know, Tim's been working on Court Industries, his Future Ends coverage over at Firestorm Fan, which I'm deeply appreciative of. Uh, Legion Superbloggers, and believe it or not, there may be another one in the pipeline. And he says, after all, I learned it from listening to you guys. Uh, over on Twitter, The Action Room was talking about the last issue of Firestorm, and he said some Pat Broderick goodness right there. Salem Zorro said, great cover. Loved that issue as a kid. And my question to Salem Zorro would be, only as a kid? Really? <laughs> then Kichi Baker rounds it out. I had talked about Stein as the short order cook and the manager being a jerk to him and, and how Stein sort of uh, thought he was better than the job. I, I Whatever I said last I- issue or episode, I, I didn't say what I really was thinking and what I meant. I was out of line, and Keith corrected me here. Stein was not too high and mighty for the position whatsoever. The manager had an issue with that. So he goes, I think you misjudged Stein's attitude about the new job in Fury Fire Show number 14. I think he was appreciative and intimidated. He didn't think the job was beneath him. 
and the bun-and-bun bun asshole manager had a huge inferiority complex as well, and an axe to grind with those, quote, college types with their, quote, books and stuff, totally projecting what he thought, Stein thought. So yes, uh, Keith, Keith's words in my mouth, please. There we go. That fixes it. All right. So, folks, in the meantime, don't forget to go Google Fury Firestorm, the Nuclear Man number 16 cover. Make sure you're looking at the 1983 version and not the 2012 version, or you won't know what the hell I'm talking about. So, in the meantime, uh, you can write to us. Rob, where can they write to us? Firewaterpodcast at Comcast.net, or the Tumblr is fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. Yep. You can leave us a review on iTunes. Please, 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 please do that. You can also leave comments on our website, uh, firestormfan.com and aquamanshrine.net. Also, you can find me on uh, several social media sites. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and, and Instagram, all under Firestorm Fan. You can find my good friend Rob here uh, under Aquaman Shrine on Twitter, uh, Google+, and... Facebook. Facebook, thank you. Couldn't come up with it. And I think that is it. Yeah, that ought to do it. All right. That'll do, pig. Until next time, folks, uh, fan the flame and ride the wave. Bye. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. Stand for truth and justice in sea, on land, in air. Firestorm and Aquaman, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah! Central City Police officials are now confirming former employee Danton Black tried to save him. Doesn't sound like he wanted to be saved. Some people, when they break, they can't be put together again. Some people heal even stronger. I hope so. Well, at least Multiplex won't be able to hurt anyone else. I told you I'd come up with a cool name. <laughs>